If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 11 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 15. The other, the other day, Andrea and the kids uh, loaded up and they went to a store near campus they'd never been to before. And not thinking to check the hours, they just get out of the van and they go up to the, the door and Andrea pulls on the door and it's, it's locked, closed. And so she tells the kids, let's get in the van. They have no idea what's going on. They don't understand why this is taking place. So they're getting in the van and they keep asking her questions. And she says, we'll, we'll have to come back later when they're open with daddy. And Andrew, my middle child, says, uh, yeah, if we had daddy with us, then he would be strong enough to open the door. Uh, so, uh, uh, in his mind, he's thinking that we would have gone in to get popsicles, except that uh, mommy wasn't strong enough to open the door, of course. So we'll have to bring back reinforcements. Uh, it's, it's one of the cool things about, about being a, a dad to young kids is... To them, you're the picture of strength. And I, uh, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but uh, I get winded just walking upstairs. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a six-pack. I have one ab, okay? Just goes straight across the middle. Just one ab. Uh, I'm, I am by no means the epitome of strength, but when my kids see me, they don't see that. When they pretend to be animals, the, the daddy animal is always the strongest, the loudest, which that one's actually true, uh, but the strongest, the loudest, the, the most physically dominant of all the animals. And when monsters are in their closet or under their beds, they want dad to come and, and you know, get rid of the monsters because dad can handle the bad guys. Well, the older we get, the enemies for sure do not disappear. They just change. And as tough as we are or as tough as we think we are, we still need someone to take care of them for us. Last week, we discussed the sufficiency of Christ, specifically in relation to our own spiritual growth and maturity. And we said that Christ is sufficient for our growth and maturity. And I said we can't turn anywhere but to Christ and to His Word, because to, because to turn to anyone else results in death rather than life. And we've already talked about a few weeks ago that Jesus rules over all things. That he's supreme over all things. But that's different than him being sufficient. Remember what we said is the difference between supremacy and sufficiency is the difference between a king and a loving parent. The king rules over you and deserves your allegiance, but he cares very little for your growth and well-being. Only that you obey his laws. But the parent, on the other hand, will love you, will feed you, will pick you up when you fall, will change your diaper, and will care for you to grow you to maturity. That's a parent's job. But in Christ, we have both the supreme king and sufficient savior, who's not only worthy of our worship and adoration, but has promised to bring us to maturity. This week, 
we're going to see once again Christ's sufficiency, but it's in a different way. Christ is not only sufficient for our growth, like last week, but he's also sufficient to handle all of our biggest enemies. Let's look with me at our text here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, you'll probably recall from last week and and weeks prior that there's a possibility that the Colossian church is dealing with a particular set of heresies that are attacking this congregation that Paul's addressing here. He gets a lot more specific this week and is going to get even more specific next week by bringing up the topic of circumcision, which is definitively a Jewish practice. He's writing to a Gentile audience who may know of circumcision, but it's certainly not a practice that they uh, undergo very often. Now, we do know that there is some question going on in the church at this time as to whether or not a Gentile can just become a Christian. Can a Gentile just come to Christ? Some were even arguing that they needed to become Jewish first, to take on circumcision and obedience to the law in order to become a Christian. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. They have this council where they're discussing that very topic. Can a person just come to Christ or does he have to become a Jew first? Well, it's going to become even more evident in the coming weeks as to to Paul dealing with this issue of both circumcision and obedience to the law in various ways. But Paul here, it seems, is diving into the sufficiency of Christ and explaining this to the Colossians in anticipation of them struggling through some of these issues with their faith. Do we need to follow the ceremonial law? Do we need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, in order to follow Christ? But for Paul, to to flee back to the law is not progression. It's not moving you closer to Christ. It's moving you uh, opposite of Christ. It's moving you away from Christ. It's regression. Explaining to them the sufficiency of Christ is basically like asking, where could you possibly turn that you would have it better than this? The law? Could you possibly go back to the law and have it better than what you have in Christ here? It's the reason he brings up the sufficiency of Christ and deals with it in such a way that he does. So last week we saw that Christ is sufficient for our growth and godly maturity. But in our passage this morning, he's telling them that through faith in Christ, the biggest enemies of the Christian are being dealt with, or they are dealt with uh, decisively. The first thing that he he lists here, he, he calls out, is that through Christ, death has been conquered. Through Christ, death has been conquered. Look there with me in verse 11. He says, In Him 
also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, he uses this term circumcision here, but it's pretty clear if you read those two verses that Paul is updating what it means to be circumcised because he's talking again to a Gentile audience who has not experienced circumcision and yet he tells them in him also you were circumcised. So it's very clear that this is not a physical thing that Paul is talking about. This is a spiritual form of circumcision that he is calling out. Now, some of you may recall the origins of circumcision from the Old Testament, but some of you, this may be really new to you. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 17, just to get an idea of the topic that we're talking about. This is going to be very important, especially for denominational differences and things like that, as we look at what Paul means here by circumcision. Go with me in Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 1. When Abraham was, uh, sorry, when Abram was 99 uh, years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a co my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Uh, then look at verse 4, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called uh, you shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So, so God is establishing His covenant here with Abraham. Abraham where he's going to basically bless him by making him the father of many nations. And at the time he speaks with Abraham now, he is 99 years old, the text says. And Abraham at this point has zero legitimate children. He has one child, Ishmael, through a servant girl. But God's saying, no, the covenant blessing will not go through Ishmael. It will go through a child you will have with your wife, Sarah. So Abraham has no legitimate children at this point, at this time that God makes a covenant with him. He only has a promise of children. But what's the condition of the covenant? Look at verse 9. He says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So God establishes this covenant with Abraham while he's going to make, uh, where he's going to make Abraham a father of many nations. He's going to make him a great nation through his offspring. And every male offspring that's born into that covenant shall be circumcised as a sign that they are members of that covenant. And then look at what he says in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So circumcision is an outward sign of membership into the covenant community that God is creating with Abraham there. Now, go back to our text in Colossians. 
Paul is using the same language of circumcision with the Colossians, but he's updating its meaning. It takes on a slightly different meaning. Now, let me warn you, in the, in the next couple of parts of the text, it can get really confusing if you're not paying attention. So we're going to walk through it step by step and look what he tells him. First, he tells him uh, in, or he tells the Colossians, in him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's saying that because of Jesus Christ, you and I are now circumcised in a non-physical way, in a spiritual way. That's what he means when he says, not made by hands. That's, if it's not made by the hands of men, it's made by the hands of God. That's the connotation. So we were circumcised by the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit changed your heart from the inside out, where at once you were hostile toward God, to now you are someone that is seeking God, that you're desirous of following after Him. This is not a circumcision made by the hands of men. This is a circumcision of the hearts of men made by the hand of God. This is not something you can muster on your own strength. This is the kind of thing that only God can do. So in Christ, your heart was circumcised by God. Then he says, by putting off the body of flesh. What does that mean? In other words, proof of your circumcision of heart is the fact that you're now living a, a life that's pleasing to God by killing the sinful impulses in your flesh. Amen. That's what Paul calls here the body of flesh. It's these sinful impulses that we all deal with, that we're all striving every day to kill with the Spirit's help on a daily basis. The fact that you are now at war with the flesh is evidence that your heart has been circumcised by God. It's evidence that you belong to the covenant community that God is creating through Christ. You're putting off the body of flesh. You're, you're discarding it. You're putting it away. You're killing it. You're denying these sinful impulses. But then the next phrase. By the circumcision of Christ. So think of that as the circumcision that comes to you by virtue of your following Christ. Only because of Christ do you have this ability now. So if you look at the whole picture that Paul's putting together, you were circumcised in heart. This is not of your own doing. This is a work that God has done, not done by, hands, uh, by the hands of men, but by the work of God. God circumcised your heart. We call that spiritual regeneration. He has circumcised your heart. At the point where you were regenerate, the Holy Spirit in you began to battle the flesh and its sinful desires. But this battle between the God at work in you and the flesh that you still live in is evidenced by the fact that you have been circumcised in heart. You wouldn't be having this battle, in other words, in other words unless the Holy Spirit had taken up residence in your heart. Before then, you were going along very happily abiding by the life of the flesh. But now it is a war. You now desire, by the Spirit's help, to obey God. And you have this circumcision only by virtue of Christ. But let's keep going. Because in verse 12, the rabbit hole goes a little bit deeper. So track with me here. 
There's one phrase in verse 12, you'll see it there, that Paul uses twice, and it's very important. He says, with him. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, and then he says, you were also raised with him. You were buried with Christ, and you were raised with Christ. What's happening, in other words, in the crucifixion of Jesus is that God sees fit to allow one man, Jesus Christ, to fully represent you before him. He is our representation before God. When I was a kid, I went to this small Christian school that was, uh, or uh, this small private school that was K through 8th grade. And uh, one of the big things every year was the annual relay race. Again, small school, okay? Just keep in mind. The annual relay race was a really big deal. Every grade had their fastest kids run this relay race representing their entire class. Now, I was always the chubby kid, so needless to say, I was always watching from the bleachers. Uh, I, I, I could catch, I could throw, but I liked donuts way too much to ever be amongst the fastest of the kids. Uh, but anyway, these four runners would represent our entire grade. If they lost, our whole grade lost. If they won, our whole grade won. And if they won, the winning grade got an ice cream party. So as the chubby kid sitting on the bleachers, you can see why I was invested in their success. I liked, I liked donuts and ice cream, actually. Um, but it, it, it wasn't just those four that won. They won for all of us. We reaped the consequences of their results, win or lose. Well, similarly, Christ is our head. He is our representation. This is such an incredibly important point in the entire scope of Scripture that we have to understand. He suffered the wrath of God, and God saw fit to let Him represent all of us. So when he was buried, we were buried with him. When he was raised, we were raised with him. Amen. Now you remember Adam, obviously. First man in scripture, created by God. Adam, too, represented the whole human race. Adam was our representative. And he fell. In the song we sang just a minute ago, he says, See the new and better Adam. Come to save the hell-bound man. It comes straight from Romans 5. What he's talking about there is that Jesus is the new Adam. Where Adam represented us, so Jesus represented us. But where Adam failed and sinned and disobeyed God, Jesus succeeded. He did perfectly what God had required of him. And by faith and spiritual rebirth, we can be born not under Adam's curse, but under Christ's success. If you are in Christ, you defeated death through Him. Through Christ, death has been conquered. Now you might ask, how is death defeated? Because if I walk out on this street and I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get the worst end of it. And to be sure, that's true. We're not going around boarding up all the funeral homes. And we're not telling everybody, hey, business is over. I don't know whether you know it or not, but Christ has defeated death. Through Christ, 
What we're saying is that he has robbed death of its significance, both spiritually and physically. He has taken away its significance. Spiritually, when you die, you go, if you are in Christ, immediately to be with the Lord while your body decays in the ground. But physically, your body decays in the ground. It dies, it decomposes because of the sinful curse of, that, that God put on this world because of Adam's sin. Adam sinned. God subjected the world to death as a result, as a punishment of Adam's sin. Well, if then God has forgiven our sin, then what would we expect to happen to our bodies when that curse is lifted? They won't stay in the grave. They'll respond exactly the way Christ's body did, came up from the grave. They would be resurrected. They wouldn't stay dead. Once God lifts the curse on the entire world, your body will be raised from the dead as Jesus' was. So Paul is saying that death has been conquered in every real and meaningful way. It has no staying power through Christ. It has been defeated. Christ is sufficient for us because enemy number one, death, has been defeated once and for all. And how does he say this happens? Through faith. He says, you were also raised with him through faith. This completes the covenant. The covenant, the new covenant, the translation is no longer circumcision of the flesh, but now circumcision of the heart. How does that circumcision of the heart take place? It takes place through faith. As a result, then, as you come forward in faith, as you profess faith in Christ, you go through baptism. Baptism being a lot of things, but one thing it is, is an outward sign that inwardly you believe in Christ. It's an outward sign of an inward faith. A faith that you already have. My, my heart has been circumcised. It has been made new. I now align completely with Christ. And you come forward before a covenant body to be baptized, to go into the water as an outward sign of that inward faith. You're basically saying to the world, yes, I want to identify with Christ. Where he was buried, I want to be buried. Where he was resurrected, I want to be resurrected. I want to take all that comes with being Christ's. I want to align myself, associate myself with Christ. Through Christ, death has been defeated. Second, through Christ, our debt has been canceled. Through Christ, our debt has been canceled. Look at what he says in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God the Father not only defeated death through, his, through the Son, but he has now canceled our record of debt. Very plainly there, he says, because we had trespassed against him. Our trespasses heaped up a mountain of debt. That's why Paul puts it here. He says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Remember that Paul is arming the church at Colossae. He's equipping the church at Colossae against heresy that could be creeping up around them. It's prone to do that from time to time, heresy is. And one of the ways that he reminds them 
is that what they have in Christ is canceled debt. Christ has defeated your biggest enemies. First of all, debt. First of all, death. Second of all, a record of debt. You needn't look any further. He defeated death, and through him, God canceled the record of your debt. Now, this image that Paul is giving us here of, of Christ canceling the record of debt is this long list of trespasses that you, have, you and I have committed against God. But then it has legal demands, he says. He canceled this record of debt with its legal demands. It's meaning that, that, that now there are legal consequences for not having paid that debt in full. So, so to break it down in terms we understand, the demand is a righteous life. You and I don't have it, and we can't give it. But now, in these financial terms that Paul uses, the bill has come due God is collecting on this bill, and you and I cannot pay it. So here's what God can do. He has a couple of options, as I see it. First, he could just say, well, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's just, let's just put it aside. You know what? Let's just not talk about it anymore. He could do that, I guess. You've probably had a friend do that from time to time when there's a rift. Maybe they sit down next to you and they say, look, I don't want to talk about it. Let's just not deal with it. Let's just put it in the past. Let's let bygones be bygones and let's, let's move forward. But that's not the most ideal of situations. Why? Because the bill collector is still out of money. He's still out the money you owe him. He hasn't reconciled that debt. It's still there. And there's a number of things that could happen in the future. The bill collector himself could go bankrupt. So what is he going to do? He's going to turn back to all of those debts that are still sitting there and go, okay, I know I said before, let's let bygones be bygones, but now I'm out of money and I need you to pay me. You could make him mad. You could really tick him off. And then now he's really coming to collect on the debt because I said let's let bygones be bygones, but now this is, a, a, this is repetition here. Let's, let's rectify this situation. But is that what God does? No. Paul says he cancels the record of debt by doing what? By nailing it to the cross. Now, you need to understand the, the terminology, the imagery that Paul is using here. What you nailed to the cross was the charge that the person is being crucified for. Matthew 27, 37, Matthew recalls this about Jesus' crucifixion. He says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. They physically charged him as claiming to be King of the Jews. And what was nailed on the cross over his head was the physical charge that he was being crucified for. So do you see what Paul is saying in Colossians? The spiritual charge of unrighteousness is what God is nailing to Jesus' cross and hanging around his neck for you. He's charging Christ with your debt. Now, this is significant because... God doesn't say about your sin, well, we'll take care of this when things settle down. We'll let bygones be bygones. We'll move this aside for now. He takes the charge of your unrighteousness and he nails it to the cross of Christ. Paid in full. 
so that Jesus can now hang on the cross and satisfy the debt that you owe God. As the hymn writer once said, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. But let me tell you, we do our culture a disservice when we make the gospel message about anything other than our own sinfulness and Christ's forgiveness. We do the culture a tremendous disservice. Our culture seems bent on, our, actually our churches seem bent on presenting this gospel message whose main point is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the message of the gospel. That has nothing to do with sin. The good news is that you are a sinner worthy of an eternity in hell. But God has offered to you forgiveness in the substitute, Jesus Christ. And if you place your trust in Him and repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, this good news will save you. That is the good news of the gospel. That in spite of your debt, you can be saved. But I not only see this in the presentation of the gospel in our churches, I see this in our parenting as well. When we shift... From making our primary goal, or to making our primary goal behavior modification, rather than dealing with godly discipline. Yeah, that's when we seek to reward the good behavior and punish the bad behavior. That's behavior modification. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not always bad. I got a lot of spankings when I was a kid, and some of them I even deserved. But uh, <laughs> just, just, just a few of them. But if we're honest, what we often fail to do as parents for our children is connect the moral reason why. There is a moral reason why we are disciplining you, why we are correcting you. It's because of sin, because you are a sinful person. And God has put me here to correct you. Now, truth be told, I do want my kids to do more good things and less bad things. But more than that, I want them to see those bad things as sinful. And I want them to know that they can repent of those sinful behaviors and trust in God through Christ for forgiveness. But when we only correct the bad and, and reward the good, then we remove sin even from the conversation. It doesn't even get talked about in the equation of parenting. It's now just about naughty and nice. And as we have conversations about the gospel with our children, I don't want them to be able to tell me, well, it's pretty nice this year. If you, if you look at the whole year, Dad, as a, as a whole, I did a lot of really good things. I know I did a couple bad things, but really shouldn't the good outweigh the bad? Anytime you have a behavior-modified, legalistic culture, what you see is that presentation of the gospel. That when I get to heaven, God's just going to weigh my good and my bad, and whatever comes out heavier is what's going to determine my fate. If I only ever teach my kids to do more good things and less bad things, you know, the bad things, they, they get you in timeout, or they get you spankings, and the good things get you trips to the zoo, or maybe get you candy or something. 
If I only ever teach them that, they'll never understand that sin is a vile odor in the nostrils of God. And they will never see the solution then as a bloodied Savior on a cross. See, if it's just about behavior modification, then none of that is really necessary. I just need to string together a few more good days. I can fix this. You know, this year, I got my lumps of coal in my stocking, but next year, I can really get some great presents if I just string together a few more good days. It teaches them that Jesus is no different than Santa Claus. We have to change the conversation back to a conversation of sinfulness. This is the good news of the gospel, that in spite of your sinfulness, God has hung the charge on the cross of Christ. And by faith in him, you can be saved. Through Christ, our debt is canceled. Last, through Christ, the devil has been defeated. Through Christ, the devil has been defeated. Look at how Paul finishes this portion of text in verse 15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The rulers and authorities that Paul is talking about here is no doubt Satan and his demons. And he uses similar terminology in Ephesians 6 where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, rulers and authorities is the phrase that Paul kind of uses a lot to describe these satanic powers that are at work in the world. Paul says that God, through Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities. What does he mean there, disarmed the rulers and authorities? Well, it, it's, it's really pretty simple here. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that what Satan's role is, is an accuser of the saints. Now, we see that in both uh, uh, Revelation 12 and Job 1 and 2. What Satan's role is, is to accuse the saints before God of misdeeds, of sins. That's his role. Even the word Satan is Hebrew, and it means the accuser. That's literally what it means. He's a prosecuting attorney. And he's bringing before God all the charges that you are guilty of. Now, if his job is to prosecute the saints before the Lord for their many grievances, for all of their sins, then what happens when God takes that list of charges and nails it to the cross? What happens to Satan's job? He's disarmed. He has no more power. He has no ammunition. He certainly can't accuse you if the Lord has not only identified those things that you're guilty of, but then he has taken them to the cross and allowed Christ to pay for them on your behalf. There's nothing left to accuse. But he's not only disarmed Satan, he says there uh, that he's also put him to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what that means. What does it mean to put him to open shame? But I, I think in Scripture bears out that Satan is caught unaware by the resurrection of Christ, not fully understanding what was taking place in the resurrection, that he did this unwittingly. In Ephesians 3, Paul says this, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the, to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. But here it is in verse 10. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's apparent that God's plan of redemption was not known beforehand to anyone except for himself, the triune Godhead. And Satan then played an unwitting partner in our redemption. He had no idea what he was doing. But the beauty that's present here in the passage is that through Christ, the disciples of Christ, that's you and me, are facing an enemy that has already been defeated. Spiritual warfare, the existence of Satan and demons, is not very popular in our culture. In fact, if we were to go outside into the world around us, maybe even to the university, definitely to the university, and we were to ask whether or not people think it's realistic to believe that there is a spiritual enemy that tempts, that deceives, that, that ridicules and does different things, does persecutes even, uh, maybe even possesses. What, what, what would they think of that? Well, they would, we would probably be scoffed at. I can tell you that right now. But I have seen with my very own eyes and I've heard it with my very own ears. Just before I moved here, went to Tanzania for a couple of weeks to train pastors and uh, the rest of the team was doing gospel sharing in the surrounding community. Well, the first day we got there, we were allowed to come into the uh, school buildings on the campgrounds that we stayed on uh, and share the gospel. They wanted us to share the gospel. I know it's a novel concept to go into a school and share the gospel uh, in our world, but that's what they wanted us to do. And so we walked into this school and we began sharing the gospel. There's several buildings on this campus and our group split up and we all took a building. And we began sharing the gospel. And then not only that, but after we shared the gospel, we went around and we actually prayed with each student. Two of our groups in two different buildings. They shared the gospel. And as soon as they started praying, five girls in two different rooms screamed as li- like they had been lit on fire and started rolling around on the floor, foaming at the mouth. What ensued was an hour-long period of prayer where all the Christians were gathered around praying for these students who were on the floor wrestling with four grown men, foaming at the mouth and screaming out as we were praying. Only to have the girls wake up an hour later and say, what happened to me and why am I on the floor? You can talk to our brothers and sisters in Africa. And they will tell you, Satan is very real. And he does, op- he does oppress and he does possess. And he is at war with us. But if you talk to them long enough, they will also tell you that he has no power over the Christian. They will also tell you stories of how they walk into villages and watch witch doctors and people possessed by demons run to the hills as they walk into this village. Because they know their time is short. Satan has been defeated. He has already been arrested, but he is on, out on bail. Make no mistake about it. He is defeated. And he has no victory over the Christian. Christ has decisively ended that battle. Christ has defeated death. He has defeated our indebtedness to God. And he has defeated Satan and his legions of demons. He is an all-sufficient Savior. Now, why then do we tremble at the thought of death? 
Death is no doubt an enemy. Death is the last enemy to be defeated. It should be mourned as people die. But why do we tremble at it? Christ has told us. The gospel tells us. We take faith and comfort in the fact that Christ has assured us of a resurrection of the body. Why do we wallow in self-pity over our sin? Why do we say, woe is me? Man, I know this time God cannot forgive me, surely, for this sin. It's one too many times. I've come to the cross one too many times asking Him for forgiveness. It's ignoring the simple fact of the gospel that when God took you, He took all of you. He took the charge that was against you, all of your sins, and he nailed it to the cross. He already knows them. He took you knowing what your sins were. Why do we wallow in self-pity, refusing to come to him in confession and repentance? All that really is, is agreeing with him. That's all we're doing in confession and repentance, is we're agreeing with what he's already stated about us. Why do we wait and wallow in self-pity? It's pride. That's all it is. At this moment, I have now outrun God's grace. God thought he was a gracious forgiver, but he never met me. He doesn't know how good I can sin. Man, I can run really fast. Faster than his arms can catch me. It's pride. Why do we tremble at the power of Satan in this world? Why do we look around at the world around us and see the darkness that's coming in and go, man, this world is so dark, I just want to crawl up in a hole and, and just take my closest friends and just keep them near me. I want to start my little own compound and I just want to have just my friends around me because look at the world around me, it's growing dark. Listen, saint, the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. Gates is a defensive metaphor. It's not that the gospel is a gate and, the, and hell is trying to penetrate. It's the other way around. There is a gate of hell that's trying to be Satan's defense, but it will not prevail against the attack of the gospel. So if you're tired of the darkness growing out in the world, go and share the gospel. It's very simple. It will not prevail against the gospel. If someone says no, move on to the next person. Continue to share the gospel. We don't need to sit around and bellyache, moaning about the power of Satan. We need to take hold of the power of the gospel and share it. Christ is sufficient for you because only through him have our greatest enemies been defeated. And without him, we are still in our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we can take comfort in the fact that you have defeated our enemies. Father, I pray we believe it. With all of our heart, I pray we believe it. We take hold of this gospel and go out and share it with the people around us. That we be comforted by the fact that we have victory through you and only through you. That we would see it as a challenge to engage even the most difficult of people with the power of the gospel. 
pray you would convince us of this truth as we go out and share in the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen.